You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is time for Searching the Scriptures, and this month we get a double whammy because it is the June-July issue, so this covers two months. We've got to pack in as much as we can for two months in this episode. Can we do it, Pastor Askins? I, You know, honestly, I'm not sure. I had one of those Angie burgers, and it's the afternoon, so I might be ready for a nap. I'm not sure how... <laughs> Our guest today, Pastor Roy Askins, he is the managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. We're taking a look at searching the scriptures in the June-July issue. What is our theme this month? Our theme is knowing the unknowable. St. Paul is talking about the, once again, the surpassing riches of the greatness of God, as we've heard him talk about time and time again, and then this prayer he has for spiritual strength. And he ends with this great line about knowing that which surpasses knowledge. It's just a great way of of phrasing it. So that's kind of the theme for today. This closes out, I suppose it doesn't really close out, but it kind of finishes up chapter three and then prepares us, leads us into chapter four, where we move into a full-on discussion of our unity in the body of Christ. So um, kind of a, a little bit of a pivot point for us in the book. Very exciting. Yeah. Any other, any other pre, pre-explanation? pre No, let's just dive on in. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to not have time for the six questions right, we have. Right. All right. Okay, here we go. Question one, read Ephesians 3, verse 14. Only one verse. I'm impressed. <laughs> what does St. Paul mean when he says that he bows his knees before the Father? Not only simply one verse, but really only one only question. One question. What is yeah. this? <laughs> so so we, we have here a short answer and a long answer. So I'm okay. going to give you the short answer. Let's read the passage first. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So this is kind of an introduction here to the rest of this section, which will become yet another prayer. St. Paul prays repeatedly throughout the book of Ephesians. And, and so he, basically the short answer is he's talking about bowing his knees in prayer. It's a shorthand way of saying prayer. Now, what is really fascinating about this is what we learn about the posture of prayer and worship and the idea of bowing our knees. We're not, this is not unknown to us. We have many of us seen pictures of, of parents teaching their children to read by kneeling by the bedside and, and praying there by the bedside. So it is a natural posture for us. It is a posture that indicates our submit to God. It is the, a posture of homage, as one might say, an homage, a, a, a a um, supplicant would come before a monarch and kneel before that monarch, right? So there's a, a posture of supplication and submission. And so for us, as the people of God, we we kneel when we pray and the fact that we are, are admitting that we are in submission to our, our God and Father. But there are other, also other aspects of our worship that entail prayer. A common one is actually kneeling in worship revolving around time uh, during times revolving around the Lord's Supper. So the mm-hmm. pastor might kneel during the words of institution as he's acknowledging the presence of God in the bread and wine. And then typically, and I shouldn't say typically, in many Lutheran churches, that you have a communion rail where they kneel to receive our Lord's body and blood. And this is an indication, once again, of our acknowledgement, our submission to our Lord and Savior and the gifts that he gives. So, Question two? Yeah, let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15. How is every family in heaven and on earth named from God the Father? And what families is St. Paul talking about here? Okay, so we're we're diving into this prayer, uh, verse 15. So, uh, well, actually 14. For this reason, I bow my knees for my Father in heaven. And then he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So this is a modifying phrase for Father. It's, all, it's defining or giving us further explanation of 
who the Father is. And he uses this phrase, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. What a great phrase. Behind this word, uh, the word family, we actually have the Greek word patria. So the Greek word for father is, the Greek word for family is patria. So it, in, in one sense, it's a play on, on the, the name, right? The father is the one who begets the patria, right? The father and the family, those are tied together, connected. But it's more than just simply uh, the fact that there's this this verbal connection or semantic connection between these two words. But rather, he's saying that we are all begat from God the Father in some sense, right? God has cre- God created Adam and Eve, and by that virtue of that creation, God has created every family on earth, right, from Adam and Eve, right? So there's this one sense that whether you are part of the family of God or not, if you're a human being on this earth, you are the result of God's creating work, who he is, right? Furthermore, we can also talk about different kinds of families, right? So there is, of course, the family of, of, the, of the church, the family we have as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. But then there's also the broader family. Oh, I just talked about that. Sorry. So that's the dual interpretation, creation and redemption. He creates as a consequence of his creation, we are part of this family. But then also he saves us, and as a consequence of being saved by him, we are part of the family of the church. So that's kind of the two meanings there. But I want to dig a little bit into this idea of identity, in part because this is something we're struggling with as as a nation in Mm -hmm. particular right now, right? It's really disturbing to hear about these young children, especially, who are being told to question their identity in terms of who they are and even what they are, whether they're male or female or whatnot. All of this is resulting from the idea that these children are being asked to identify themselves, right? Mm. Pick for yourself what you are, who you are, to whom you belong, right? The glory and the part of, the, I, I would say, the unsearchable riches of who we are in Christ Jesus is that we have received an identity, an identity that comes from God the Father. We are part of his family. So for us, this choosing isn't uh, something we have to do, right? We were chosen by God in Christ Jesus, right? We were named part of his family, right? Part of who he is is a consequence uh, of his choosing of us and redeeming of us in Christ Jesus. This is a very uh, comforting thing, something that we should be putting forth before our children on a regular basis as they're being told, no, you have to pick your own identity. You have to pick who you are. This is not what the Christian has to do. We know who we are. And being named part of that family also means that that we have this identity, and this identity has um, responsibilities, vocations, duties in light of this that actually give our life meaning and purpose and direction, right? Who are we? We are God's children. This is what our life looks like. And this is actually what he's going to get to later on in in chapter four and chapter five and chapter six. He's going to talk about this family life, this identity, how it works out. But this is all given to us. Now, some, I suppose, might say this is restrictive and, and you know, who wants to be given an identity? But the reality is we find great freedom in this identity because it's not something we have to worry about coming up with and identifying ourselves. So just a great passage here about God, once again, choosing us and in choosing us, incorporating us, us into his family and naming us as his own. Once again, I, I went, let me talk a little bit about this idea of naming also. Not simply that we belong to the family, but we are named with this family. I just uh, had a friend tell me, you know, I don't, an hour ago that he had a son, his wife gave birth to a son and they gave me the name. It's just, I, I would love to say it on the, on the air, but he hasn't probably announced it more oh. probably, so I can't. But it's just, <laughs> just amazing, powerful name, right? And it, and, and it, it's a, it's a great, strong name. And, and the, the idea here is 
when we are named from the family of God, it's not simply a label that's stuck on us that we can peel off and put another label on, but actually we receive the name of God. God acts for the sake of this name. Once again, in the book of Ezekiel, which I'm sure we've talked about a number of times, God says he's going to redeem Israel, not for Israel's sake, and not for the nation's sake, but for the sake of his own name. He acts for the good of his name. And when you have his name on you, guess who he's acting for? He's acting on your behalf, right? This naming is a powerful thing. It indicates who he is and what he does. We think of the, the name, for instance, Emmanuel. This is an, uh, God with us. It identifies who God is and what he's doing. Jesus, because he will save his people from, his sin, from their sins. Once again, an indication of who God is and what he's doing. And that name is the name that's given to his people in Christ Jesus. That's the name that seals us as part of his family, both in heaven and on earth. And that's good stuff. Lord be praised. It was fun. <laughs> All right. Question three. Read Ephesians 3, 16. Why is St. Paul concerned about the strength of the Ephesians? See also Ephesians three thirteen. What strength is he referring to and what is the inner being? Okay. So we're continuing on in this prayer. So we bow before the Father from whom every family is named. And then verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, let's kind of begin. Let's begin with this first question. Why is St. Paul concerned about the strength of the Ephesians? Last month's study, we talked about uh, the Ephesians being worried uh, for St. Paul. He was in prison. He was he was in chains. He was going to um going to be going to Rome and, and eventually would die there in Rome. And the Ephesians are concerned that it was in part their fault, right? If we look back at, at Ephesians 3, verse 13, he tells them, I ask you not to lose heart for what I am over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. In other words, he's saying, I'm in chains. You are not the result of this, but this is for your glory, right? This is for the good of God and the proclamation of, of God's name. And, uh, and the church will be glorified in this. And so he's telling them not to feel guilt over whatever they felt their part in his imprisonment might be. Okay. Uh, but he's also praying that they that they would be that they would be strengthened. A couple of things here. God's hearing of the prayer, listen to how he says this. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Note, God's hearing of the prayer here is not determined by the strength of the petitioner, right? He's not saying, really buckle up in your prayer life, you know, be a prayer warrior. He's not saying anything like this, right? I don't know that I've all... <laughs> I struggled with his language of prayer warrior, and it, it you know it dawned on me today as I as I was thinking about this. It, it makes it sound like prayer is a battle between the one praying and God. Like you know, I'm a warrior and I'm going to war with God in prayer. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just it always struck me wrong. I can't stand that that term, that phrase. The point is, God's hearing of the prayer is not based on the strength of the petitioner, nor the merit of the petitioner, not the amount of work that they've been done. Rather, it's based in inherently and totally and completely on the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, right? It is all his work, okay? All right, so the next question in this, uh, this section here is, what is the strength he's referring and what is the inner being? This gets back to what we were just saying. The strength he's referring to is the strength of God, the strength that is given by the Holy Spirit. Once again, this is baptismal language, as you see that he's talking, talking about—oh, actually, that's in verse 18. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit giving 
uh, strength, strengthening you, uh, a baptismal unity that, that comes as a result of this, something that will come up again in chapter four. And then in inner, inner being, the reference here to inner being is once again, a conversation or a question of the new man who delights in the law of God. This is not a, like the, the, it's not the, the mind of man. It's not a psychological term. It's not a spiritual term necessarily. It is rather the new man who lives in you as a consequence of who Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ bring you to new life. Right? So the contrast of course, being, if you look at Ephesians chapter four, verse 22, he talks about the old man, right? Put off your old self, your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life. This is now uh, the new man uh, that lives in Christ Jesus. We are searching the scriptures with Pastor Roy Askins. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment as we take a look at the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're taking a look at searching the scriptures in the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness with Pastor Roy Askins. And we are in Ephesians chapter 3, the, the second part of the chapter. Pastor Askins, before we go on to question four, anything else you want to wrap up on question three from Ephesians 3.16? I don't think so. I think we can move on to four. All right. Read Ephesians 3, verse 17. How does the Holy Spirit strengthen you with power? What other passages in Ephesians does this verse call to mind? See Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Will you give us the answer right there? Sure. Let's look at and read the verse here, 317, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Part of the difficulty here in, in doing this is these are all like little phrases that are part of the the one long sentence. Once again, St. Paul loves these <laughs> long sentences that just never seem to. But so th- this is part of his prayer. It's part of the petition that he has. The second part of the petition, the first part is that you may be strengthened. The second part of this petition is that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So let's talk about this. The short answer is, how does the Holy Spirit strengthen you? Short answer, he strengthens you by bringing Christ to dwell within you through his means of grace, through the word, the preaching of his word, uh, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. But let's go into the long answer. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything, you know, you get done too quick. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the idea here is Christ dwelling within you. This recalls uh, back to our mind, actually, the end of Ephesians chapter 2, which is what, I don't know, three months ago. Do we even remember that? The end of Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about in verse 19, or verse, uh, 19 20, and 21, that you are no longer strangers, strangers and aliens, but you are being built into the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that you are being built in a temple to the Lord. And then verse 22, in him you are being built in together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so he's pulling back this imagery or returning to this imagery of the church being built together as a place where God dwells. As if you also recall in that, that verse, Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of that church, of that building, right, of the church. 
So he dwells among us as the church. This is not a once and done thing. This is the fact that God actually dwells with us and continues to dwell with us, remains among us. This is also similar language to what you see when Jesus is baptized in the accounts of his baptism. You see the Holy Spirit, the text says, comes and remains on him. Some of the translations have it. That's actually a better translation because it indicates that the Holy Spirit didn't just land on him and then take off and go somewhere else, Mm. but the Holy Spirit comes and lands and dwells there, remains there, Uh, not living merely in a tent, but actually dwelling there and remaining there with Christ Jesus. So also in the church, God comes and dwells with us. Now, this means that as Christ dwells with us, there are naturally the changes in our lives, right? As the people of God, Uh, St. Peter or St. Paul talks about this elsewhere. If God is dwelling within you, if your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, how can you then go join your members of your body in sin, right? The consequence then is, is a change of life. Now, part of this, the result of this dwelling within you, also in verse 17 here, is that you are rooted and grounded in love. A wonderful, beautiful language here of being rooted and grounded. Of course, the uh, notion of rooted recalls Christ's parable of the sower, right? Mm-hmm. The different soils, right? And that uh, he throws the seed, the seed grows, it's rooted there. And then, of course, once again with the grounding, we return back to the end of chapter in chapter two, where you have this the church built on this foundation. And this foundation, of course, in which we are both rooted and grounded is the love of God. Now, this love here is beautiful. The point of this is that it is his love for us, not our love, right? We are rooted and grounded in love. That That is God's love for us in Christ Jesus, that he suffered and died for us, that this is the, 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 uh, climax of the image of his love for us, that he suffered and died on the cross for us. We do, as a consequence, love one another as a result of this, but that which we are rooted and grounded in is not our love, not our deeds, but in fact, the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. All right. Question five? Yep. Read Ephesians three eighteen to 19. How is it possible to know the love of Christ if that love surpasses knowledge? How do we know Christ's love? I love this passage. So Ephesians 3, 18, so that you, once again, Christ dwelling in you, rooted in grounded love, so that you may have strength. So we're returning here back to the prayer. He has these two little petitions. We're returning back to the prayer. You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay. What is he talking about here? We're actually going to talk a little bit about the passage first. The actual question comes from the second verse. Let's actually dig into this a little bit more uh, about what it means to what this verse is talking about. Um, Verse 18 begins that you may have the strength to comprehend. We can literally say also to be able to grasp, I mean, simply to grasp this knowledge and what it is. And then he says, with all the saints. This is a great little phrase here. It recalls a number of different things. First off, it reminds us of our baptism, right? We are made saints, made holy, set apart in the waters of holy baptism. And not simply us, but all the saints, right? The idea here is that all the saints have access to this knowledge. There's no special hidden knowledge out there. There was a sect, uh, or well, I should say a, a false religion during during the early days of Christianity known as the, as the Gnostics, and they, believe you, they believed you had to have special knowledge. You had to have the secret knowledge that was imparted only to certain people, and, and you had to have a special teacher that would convey this knowledge to you. Not so in Christianity. There is no hidden knowledge, no special knowledge. This is a knowledge that all the saints have and, and can delight and, and, and treasure in. And this is the, the love. And then he continues, what is the breadth and length and height and 
depth. Now, I didn't know this, but the early church fathers actually used this as an analogy of the cross. I mean, look at this. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that great? <laughs> the breadth and length, right? So you uh-huh. have the the, the the horizontal crossbar of the cross, right? And then the height and the depth, right? So you have Christ from east to west and from God to man, right? And wow. so they would use this as, yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> the problem is exegetically, it makes no sense. So so it's a great, uh, it's, a, it's a great analogy, something we can use to talk about the faith, a great explanation, but it's not actually you know, what Paul was intending to say, but it is beautiful. I love it nonetheless. So, all right, this gets now then to our, to our question. How is it possible to know that which surpasses knowledge, right? And the, the fact that this, this is, is so fascinating because this knowledge is absolutely required. We must know this without this, I should put, uh, you can't see me, we're doing air quotes, knowledge, one cannot be saved, right? Mm-hmm. To, uh, if without the love, without uh, receiving Christ's gifts, without knowing his love, we cannot be saved. So by faith, we do know these things, and yet we cannot fully know it. We cannot understand entirely that which Christ has done for us, nor who he is, right? This is in, in many ways the miracle of faith. We in fact know the unknowable, even though we don't know it fully. So how is this done? This is done through revelation, through his scripture, through the preaching of his word. And once again, as we've talked about a couple of times already through the means of grace in baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is how we know Christ's love for us as he gives us these things. And and this, I should point out once again, this knowledge is not uh, merely a head knowledge, but it is a confidence and a trust, right? It's Mm -hmm. not simply rational. Like even the demons know that Christ lived, suffered, and died, right? But they don't believe and trust in him, right? So this is not merely head knowledge, but it also is a, a faith and a confidence in Jesus Christ. So the other thing that we should notice, part of the reason St. Paul uses this language, he uses this oxymoron to talk about knowing the unknowable, is in part an exhortation to seek him only where he has revealed himself. That is mm. not to seek him outside of this knowledge, right? God revealed himself in the scripture. He has given us what we need to know about him. We trust in him and how he has revealed himself there. And that's where we where we put our trust. That's where we, we I guess, in the search in some sense, right? Knowing that. So uh, that's kind of the, the long answer to that question. Knowing the unknowable is known only in, in the word of God. Now, I want to add just a few more things on this last little bit, All the be, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is another of Paul's wonderful descriptions in which he talks about Christ dwelling within you, right? What is the fullness of God? Well, Christ is the fullness of God. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And now guess what? Christ dwells in you. You are filled with Christ, who is now who is the fullness of God, right? Not in the sense that you become God. This isn't a deification of, of man, but in the sense that you are now united to God. Through Christ Jesus, you are a child of God as a consequence of this. And the way that St. Paul describes this here is just this beautiful language of being filled with all the fullness of God. Question number six. We ready? Yep. All right. Read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. God has glory, and we as the church are called to give him glory. What is the glory of God? How does the church give him glory? The passage. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this is a little uh, 
concluding uh, portion of the prayer, it is it uses very what we call high liturgical language, right? When we pray in church, we use different words and sentence structures than we would normally use in normal conversation. It's just the way we we worship. Uh, this is exactly what St. Paul is doing here in these two verses. And he talks and he mentions in here, once again, the glory of God. Now, what is this glory of God? I have about two minutes to discuss what is the glory of God. So here we go. Old Testament precedence here, when we talk about the glory of God, is both a blessing and a curse. Um, God, uh, God's glory, when it comes as a curse, goes out to actually destroy his enemies, right? Isaiah sees the glory of God and he falls down in fear. Ezekiel sees the glory of God actually leave the temple because the people of God had profaned the temple. This glory in its own is unapproachable. It's terrifying. At the same time, the glory is in the Old Testament, the glory of God, an indication of his presence also to bless, right? His glory comes into the tabernacle when the tabernacle is first constructed. When Solomon constructs the temple, the glory of God comes and blesses the temple. So this idea of blessing and curse both exist simultaneously in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, the glory of God is located in Christ Jesus himself. And in Christ Jesus, we can now approach the glory of God, but only in him, right? Uh, Because he is the one in whom God locates himself and his presence for the good of his people. That was quick. That was quick. (laughs) Impressive. Pastor Askins, how can we find Searching the Scriptures and The Lutheran Witness? How do we how do we get a copy of The Lutheran Witness, whether online or print copy? Yeah, so check out the website. On the website, we have some of our, our print stuff uh, for free and a bunch of other free content. That's witness.lcms.org. You can find all sorts of great stuff there. If you want to subscribe to Lutheran Witness, which I highly encourage, you need to go to CPH's website, and that's uh, or Concordia Publishing House's website. That's cph.org slash witness. And you can subscribe there. You also, let me encourage you, for those of you who are interested, consider contacting, if you're an LCMS Lutheran, your district office. A lot of times you can get discounts to the district office too. Very good. Thank you so much. Pastor Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness, searching the scriptures with us for this June-July issue. So we'll be back then in August, I guess, is the next time we'll have uh, another issue of The Lutheran Witness. Right, brother? That is correct. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Coffee Hour. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.